HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Jacqueline Rowell. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. This week, we return for What to Read Now, Spring 2022, which is dedicated to highlighting new books in food studies. Our newest issue is now available online. Our review section covers several new books and films in food, including Peach Date by Adrian Sue, published by University of Pittsburgh Press in 2021. This book of poetry on food, cooking, and migration explores culinary experiences of Chinese Americans in the U.S. South. Amber Waves, the extraordinary biography of wheat from wild grass to world megacrop by Catherine Zabinski, a scholar of plant and soil ecology, explores one of the world's most ubiquitously cultivated crops. It was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2020. And Fat, a graphic novel and memoir by artist and writer Regina Hoffer, translated into English by Natasha Hoffmeyer, puts the author's experience of eating disorders into visceral and visual form through black and white drawings. It was published by Pennsylvania State University Press in 2021 through the Graphic Mundi imprint, a graphic series of nonfiction works that are dedicated to pressing topics in areas such as health, environment, science, and technology. To learn more about these recent books and others, check out our review section in Gastronomica's most recent issue, Spring 2022, now available online. I am joined today by Michael Classens, Assistant Professor in the School of the Environment at the University of Toronto, President of CAFS, the Canadian Association for Food Studies, and author of the recently published book, From Dismal Swamp to Smiling Farms, Food, Agriculture, and Change in the Holland Marsh just released in November 2021 by UBC Press. Michael, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Now, Michael, what are you reading these days? Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. Um, so yeah, I have a few, I have a few books uh, that I'll mention that uh, you know I've read, but I'm in the process of sort of combing back through because I think that they're so powerful. So the first is uh, Max LeBron's book, Pollution is Colonialism. Uh, Max is a Métis scholar at Memorial University 
Um, and yeah, just a, a, a sort of paradigm shifting book, I think. Um, <clears throat> three others really quickly. Uh, there's this book, Black Food Geographies by Ashante Reese. Um, that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think is also just a really, really important book. Uh, it's about race, self-reliance, sort of community self-reliance uh, um, and food access in, in Washington. Um, and a kind of companion to that in some ways is Monica M. White's book, Freedom Farmers. Um, and uh, <clears throat> Professor White sort of narrates uh, kind of the founding of Tuskegee University uh, and, you know, talks about the ways in which sort of black liberation was sort of uh, tied up in the processes of kind of agricultural production. Um, and then a final book that uh, was originally released in 2011, um, but there's a new edition coming out this summer or this spring um, that kind of, um, uh, in some ways, um, it links very nicely with Monica M. White's book, Freedom Farmers. So there's this book called Fields of Learning, uh, The Student Farm Movement in North America uh, by uh, Frederick uh, Kirschenman, uh, Laura, Laura Sayer, and, and Sean Clark. And so, you know, I'm interested in this book in particular because my own sort of research interests have um, uh, been kind of um, ported over to to campus farms. And so this book talks about, you know, the kind of intersection of sort of food movements and and campus sort of student-focused, uh, you know, movements. And so, yeah, I'm very interested and I'm very uh, eager to... Um, yeah, to read this new edition uh, of this book, Fields of Learning, which again is coming out uh, later on this spring. Thanks, Michael. I'm going to keep an eye out for it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that struck me about all the books that you shared with us, um, all of them very much uh, explore the issue of, of food politics, uh, food change um, within food systems and specifically related to, to the environment. And so this brings us to, to your book, which we're here to talk about today, uh, From Dismal Swamp to Smiling Farms. Uh, so before we dig into the book itself, can you tell us more about what you do and your background in food and environmental studies? Yeah, sure. So, um, so yeah, as you mentioned, uh, I work at University of Toronto in the School of the Environment. And so my work, you know, I, I usually talk about it as being broadly framed within the context of social and ecological justice with, a, with an empirical focus within the context of the food system. So, you know, most of my work is focused on the food system um, and, you know, generally uh, sort of urban and peri-urban uh, sort of food systems, uh, you know, relocalization of food systems um, and, and, and movements based around food systems. So I've done lots of work with sort of nonprofit organizations and community groups. And again, the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of work on sort of student food movements, um, you know, it, a lot of people have observed, of course, that, uh, you know, if you, you know, even going back to the, you know, the civil rights movement, the anti-apartheid movement, the original organics movement, um, you know, these were all sort of fomented to some extent on, on campuses. And, and, and of course, there's still lots of work, to, you know, to be done within the context of racial justice, et cetera. But, you know, the, these sort of community campus partnerships were really able to kind of, um, you know, uh, make some significant headway, I think, in movements for social and also environmental justice. So, uh, you know, I see a lot of potential, a lot of promise in working with students um, on these issues and I'm inspired by you know, a lot of the work that students across North America are doing within the context of sort of food systems transformation. And so your research really brings together or your work really brings together 
teaching, research, and advocacy for food system change. Um, yeah. Is that new? Is that newer, or did that come out of the work on your book? Yeah. So, I mean, it did. It did emerge, uh, I guess, from the work on the on on the book. Um, you know, partly in thinking about, um, you know, just these kind of cascading um, crises, right, that we're facing, and thinking about, you know, how do we actually address these um, in in kind of sustainable ways, in ways that will actually, you know, make an impact. And so, again, this is what sort of drew my attention to working with working with students, um, and also this kind of pedagogical piece, you know you know, lots of people have observed that, you know, we probably have a lot of the kind of scientific understanding and the technical understanding that we need to, you know, to, to sort of fundamentally transform the world and to, kind of, you know, to make the kinds of interventions we need to make uh, to, you know, to significantly reduce carbon, you know, to sort of climate change, adaptation, mitigation, etc. But what seems to be missing, of course, is the popular and political will uh, to some extent. And that's so, I see pedagogy within this context is, you know, as a, as a process of kind of knowledge co-production, uh, knowledge mobilization, you know, these kinds of things. Um, so this is where the, you know, my interest in sort of food studies and pedagogy and, and food movement sort of intersect, I think. And so the book is a case study of human environmental relations, um, which is really uh, focused on the Holland Marsh, which you describe as a 3,000 hectare a protected agricultural area located just north of Toronto's suburbs. Um, so you describe it as culture's marsh because the land itself was was forged uh, by humans out of wetland one century ago. Um, and it's now uh, a small but mightily productive agricultural area. So this is this is the the kind of ground um, uh, that that's or the this the space that's grounding your research. Um, what brought you to the study of this particular region? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was, you know, I think as research projects often do start, you know, mine was, it was just sort of serendipitous. Um, the first year, so I did my PhD at York University. And in the first year, I sort of joined a, just a local tour um, of kind of various kinds of food systems assets, if I can use that word, uh, kind of around the greater Toronto area. And one of the places we stopped into was the Holland Marsh. And of course, as I mentioned in the book, I mean, if you grew up in this part of the world, which I did, um, to get north of the city, to get north of this like large urban agglomeration of Toronto, um, you know, there's really only one way, one way out, and that's Highway 400, which bisects the marsh. It goes right through the Holland Marsh, and so I had driven, you know, down this Highway 400, you know, so many times uh, as a kid, you know, going north to go camping or something, and you know, never really thought sort of twice about it, you know. Um, and then it wasn't until, yeah, this trip during the first year of my PhD where I was like, huh, this is kind of an interesting, interesting place. I want to, you know, I want to learn more about it. Uh, and it was framed within, within that, um, within that tour that we took as a, you know, as a, <clears throat> as a kind of exemplar, you know, of local food production. Um, and so, you know, again, it sort of piqued my interest and I wanted to, to sort of learn more about it and, uh, you know, as I dug into it, of course, and kind of tried to problematize it a little bit, uh, you know, I found out that it wasn't kind of, you know, um, as unproblematic as it was presented to us, I think, in the in the first instance. And your description actually really resonated with me. I grew up in the area, too, and I remember oh. those drives up Highway 400 as well. <laughs> and that transition um, 
that you described. So how many farms are there now? Can you give us a sense of the scale and, and the, you know, the industry that it supports? Yeah, sure. So there are, um, so the whole area is about 7,400 hectares. Um, and about 60% of that was drained for agricultural land. And about 40% of it is, is now sort of preserved wetland, uh, marshland. And so, um, you know, there's about 7,400 uh, acres that are actively cultivated. And there's about 125 farms in that, in that area. So, you know, these farms are quite small compared to like what we think of in the context of, say, large scale industrialized agriculture you know, for wheat production or corn or soy, where, you know, it's many thousands of, of, of acres. Um, so yeah, the farms in the Hollow Marsh are relatively small. Um, and you know, the, it's tough to get a, a, a good sort of reading on, um, the kind of economic impact, but at least one study from the Hollow Marsh Growers Association estimated that the, um, uh, the, the kind of total economic impact of the marsh in the, in, in, in the local area, so this is not only the vegetables that are being grown, but also the packaging and processing and transportation uh, activities is worth about a billion dollars a year. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, about $130 million in carrot production and $160 million in onion production. And, and those are really the main crops that are grown there. Um, and uh, the average per, per hectare um, farm receipts are about four times higher than the provincial average. So, what they grow in the marsh is very different than, you know, what you might see in, you know, sort of south, southwestern Ontario, where it, it is more kind of industrial, you know, soybeans, corn, uh, tobacco to a lesser extent, these kinds of things. In the marsh, it, it, it's mostly, you know, uh, carrots, uh, onions, and celery. Those are the, you know, that makes up probably Primary 70. Crops. Yeah, that makes up pro- probably about 70% of, of the crops grown there. And then, you know, there's also some lettuce and, you know, some beets and you know, to a lesser extent, but uh, those three crops really dominate the area. The market. Yeah. Um, so, and so that makes it some of the most profitable mm-hmm. land really um, not only in Canada, but on the, on the continent in terms of agricultural production. Yeah, it does. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the book covers a wide time period and, and you really focus on the last century. And I, and I want to dig into that in a minute, but how far back do you reach and why? Yeah, so I start, you know, in sort of time immemorial, I think, as, as I put it. So about, you know, maybe 14,000 years ago. Um, and, you know, part of the reason why I do this is because, um, you know, one of the things I want to try to do with this book is demonstrate the ways that sort of capital um, is opportunistic. Um, that's sort of, you know, a, a key theme of, of, of the book. And in order to do that, I wanted to kind of look at the at, at the, the kind of um, you know the the kind of capital and nature of the area, right? How, how was this landscape assembled uh, that would then sort of allow capital to sort of penetrate it in various kinds of ways? And and you know to talk about the marsh, you have to you have to talk about the geology, right, and the kind of history of the area because uh, the kind of distinctive feature about the marsh is, of course, its soil. Um, this organic order of soils, it's called in Canada, otherwise known as muck, muck soil. Um, and it's very different than, you know, conventional soil that you would see, you know, in the Highland areas or, you know, really anywhere else um, uh, in, in the country or the continent. You know, there are pockets. Oh, sorry. Were, right? you, 
when you say conventional soil, do you mean mineral soil? That's versus, right. Versus, okay. Yeah. Like mixed mineral soil, loam, you know, clay mix, these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, the muck crop, uh, sorry, the muck soil is, um, you know, so if you, if you've ever been near a wetland and you can imagine plunging your hand into the wetland and just grabbing a handful of material, you know, if you haven't done this yet, next time you're around to Mars, try it. Um, mm-hmm. it's actually quite, you know, viscerally sort of appealing to just plunge your hand into these soft mucky areas. And what you would pull out is, is a, a, a kind of amalgam of, you know, there would be some moss in there. There would be, of course, lots of root matter. There'd be, you know, leaves probably sort of decomposed. There'd be a fine sort of black smeary silt. Um, and that's, you know, that turns out to be a, a very, very uh, productive growing media. Um, and so the formation of that swamp in the first instance um, is predicated on the kind of geological history of the area, right? Because the, you know, um, the Canadian Shield, of course, is just north of, of the Hollow Marsh. It starts just north of that area, right? Just north of kind of like Simcoe. But below that, there was much softer rock. And so as, as glaciers um, sort of scoured this, you know, this part of the world over millennia, it dug out these, these sort of uh, low-lying areas. And then eventually, you know, when things start to warm up about 14,000 years ago, water fills in these areas, little bits of plant material begin to grow and die off and grow and die off. And this is how you get... The plutification is the name. It's this sort of spreading out of, um, of, of wetlands, right? This is how sort of wetlands grow. Uh, and again, that is essential to understanding this, this muck soil and why mm-hmm. this area in particular was targeted. So that's the kind of long-winded way of saying why I wanted to sort of explore that kind of geological history, because again, that sets the foundation uh, through which capital can then find opportunities to sort of exploit that, that kind of so-called natural capital. And the marsh is on the traditional lands of the Wendat and the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabeg. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, And so can you talk about some of the transformations um, that happen to produce out of a wetland, uh, a farmland, the key transformations and the key moments of transformation? Yeah, sure. So, um, so yeah, as you, as you say, um, you know, about sort of, well, 13, 14,000 years ago, um, this land was under the stewardship of the Wendat. Uh, they're eventually over time um, displaced by the Haudenosaunee. Uh, and then uh, and then after that, um, yeah, you know, the Anishinaabe um, uh, control this territory. In, um, there's sort of three, three main treaties, I guess, uh, that are kind of uh, germane to the areas so of the Toronto Purchase, uh, Treaty 13 in 1805. Uh, in 1818, there's the uh, Natawasaga Purchase or Treaty 18, and then in uh, 1923, the Williams Treaty uh, was signed. And so the marsh is sort of, you know, it's it's sort of trisected by 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 each of these. You know, parts of it are, are sort of subject to these different sort of treaty areas. Um, but of course, you know, in you know, indigenous people are eventually sort of displaced um, from you know from the area, and of course, they had used it for. Um, you know, for as as a source of food and sustenance for you know time uh, immemorial, and you know the Carrying Place Trail ends just before the marsh, and you know so there's stories about how you know the marsh was, yeah, hunting grounds and you know it's a source of water. I mean, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, <clears throat> again, eventually uh, those those are displaced, and as early as the kind of you know very late kind of 1800s, very early 1900s, 
uh, people start talking about you know um, you know the kind of agricultural potential uh, of this of this area. Initially, I mean, it's written off, right? I mean, Dismal Swamp. I mean, this is this is what it was called by the kind of earliest sort of you know colonial explorers to sort of go through the marsh. They they sort of wrote it off and called it a Dismal Swamp, and it was it was a wasteland, and um, and there was also some fear, right, of, of of wetlands at the time, right? There was a kind of you know people thought you could get cholera, all these kinds of things. Um, eventually, that sort of that narrative flips, um, partly because of this kind of colonial kind of agricultural expansionist mindset. Um, uh, and the notion that, uh, you know, there was something inherently good about transforming landscapes, right? You had to make them productive. And so you could, you could sort of, you could sort of purge these landscapes, uh, of their, of their sort of ills and dangers through, through their transformation and, you know, by bringing them into kind of active, you know, uh, production. And so, you know, there was sort of, there were sort of various kind of false starts, uh, but, but by the, you know, by the 1920s, um, activity to, to sort of drain, you know, uh, uh, the Holland Marsh were, were, were sort of up and running. And, um, uh, yeah. And so, you know, the plan was basically to cut this, you know, I say in the book that it's, it looks roughly kind of like a banana shape if you look at it from, you know, from a high enough vantage point. But, um, yeah. So, you know, it, I mean, essentially there was just a, you know, a canal dug around, uh, you know, uh, the wetland and, um, and then, you know, the water was drained out and that was the, you know, I mean, that took a few years because, you know, you can imagine this is very tricky work, particularly in the 1920s, but, um, I mean, that, that's essentially what happened. And, and your book, you, in, in your book, you include images to show, um, to show the, the physical uh, manifestations of the land and, and the, how it was uh, carved out into um, different patches and as the farmland was created. And, and so you draw on a number of different kind of sources and methods that you bring together in a really interesting way within the book. Can you say, and then we're going to go to break, but can you say uh, a little bit more about the materials that you looked at and how you connected the historical, the social and environmental threats to tell this bigger story about political ecology and change? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky, right? And, you know, I, I quote, I think in the proof, in the, in, in the preface, uh, uh, you know, William Cronin, who, who of course is a, very, you know, maybe the environmental historian, right? Um, and he talks about, um, you know, assembling a kind of a story, right? He thinks of history as kind of assembling a story and that, you know, you tell stories through your own particular understandings of the world, right? There isn't just kind of one, uh, you know, one kind of definitive history of kind of how, you know, how things uh, unfolded. So I really took that to heart in in, in my own approach. And so, what I tried to do is kind of triangulate, you know, um, from lots of different sources. So, of course, I spent a lot of time in and around the Holland Marsh. Uh, you know, many of the farmers there, you know, I, I rode on tractors. You know, people took me out for harvest. I sat in the front yards drinking lemonade, you know, talking to farmers. I uh, went to lots of events. And then, you know, they have something called, you know, the Carrot Fest. It's an annual, um, an annual sort of, um, you know, celebration that they have in the marsh. <clears throat> but I also spent a lot of times in archives. Um, you know, many, many hours in archives trying to find, you know, policy documents, sort of historical documents, uh, you know, article, you know, newspaper articles, images, pictures, um, you know, I spent time with various historical societies, just trying to sort of assemble, you know, the own, you know, my own story, I guess, about the marsh. Um, 
And, you know, um, and I tried to sort of put the, de the development of the marsh within the kind of broader context of, of agriculture, right? So the, the broader sort of uh, trends in, in global agriculture and try to show ways in which it, it in some ways kind of aligned with and kind of um, reinforced these global trends, but also ways in which there was kind of disjunctures and where the marsh sort of departed from, you know, the, the, the kind of broader trends in global kind of industrialized and industrialized agriculture. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So we are going to take a short break and we will be back in just a moment. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jacqueline Orwell talking with Michael Classens about his new book, From Dismal Swamp to Smiling Farms, Food, Agriculture, and Change in the Holland Marsh. So we're talking about the production of agriculture and farmland. In your book, you describe, and, and, and we've chatted about this a little bit so far, but the initial transformation of the land, the, val the valley was drained, uh, creating fields out of wetland, and the land becomes farmable around 1930, 1935, uh, due to a combination of efforts, um, engineering, policy, legislative efforts. So I have a question about infrastructure. Can you talk about... Um, how the infrastructure developed around this time, the physical infrastructure, the social and knowledge infrastructure, the new and expanding markets. So what kinds of infrastructure um, helped support the takeoff of this agricultural industry in the post-war period? And then how far was this produce going um, from Ontario and you know, what innovations helped it get there? Yeah, <clears throat> that's a great question. I mean, this is, um, <clears throat> you know, this is, um, I mean, I think a really interesting sort of period in the marsh. So, um, you know, it did take until the kind of immediate post-war period for the marsh to really sort of take off. Um, you know, initially, um, because of the nature of the of the soil, you know, there's this there's this characteristic of 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 the muck soil that makes it, you know, the nutrients are very readily available, and it's sort of custom designed in many ways to grow carrots and celery. Um, and, and, and onions. And so, um, initially there's this, uh, there's this real challenge because, um, the fields are so productive with these particular crops, um, um, that local markets in Toronto are sort of glutted. And so it just drives the price down. So for, you know, five, seven, almost, you know, uh, almost a decade, um, there's very little, pro you know, farmers are making very little profit because they're just, they're growing too many of these crops. So there's a couple of things here. Uh, one is that, um, you know, they could have tried to grow other kinds of things, right? Um, they could have tried to just grow, you know, tomatoes or soybeans or corn or 
these kinds of things. But, you know, there's this, there's this notion of kind of specialization, right? That they wanted to kind of maximize the profit potential uh, of the marsh by growing higher value crops like celery and, and carrots and onions. Um, but again, everyone was doing that and, and, and the market was quite, was quite concentrated. Um, and so every harvest time, um, you know, their prices would just be, I mean, dismal, you know, and tons of, you know, many, many, um, harvest seasons where crops would just be sort of plowed back in the ground because it was actually, you know, you would lose more money by, by bringing them into Toronto to try to sell them. <clears throat> so part of the reason why this was, is because, um, you know, crops like soybeans and wheat and corn, of course, can be, you know, have been for centuries shipped around the world because they are dry crops and they don't rot, you know, uh, things like lettuce, um, you know, and at this, at, at this period, they were growing a lot more lettuce in the marsh, but uh, things like lettuce, <clears throat> carrots and celery and onions, they rot quite quickly. And so <clears throat> you're constrained by both sort of time uh, and, and space if you're growing these kinds of crops. And so in uh, the kind of immediate post-war period, um, a couple of non-farmers uh, buy up a bunch of land in the Holland Marsh. Um, you know, they even describe themselves as, as businessmen first. So Philip and Morris Latchman uh, formed Federal Farms Limited in 1948, and uh, a guy called Abram Dees um, uh, founds Hardy Farms in 1945. <coughs> sorry, 1954. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, they bring in certain kinds of innovations that allow uh, the food to be, uh, to be shipped, you know, further abroad. So uh, a couple of uh, really important innovations. So one was, was uh, ice packing facilities. Uh, so they, they introduced ice packing facilities. So, you know, these very large facilities where you can bring in a bunch of uh, lettuce, say, and very quickly, you know, uh, you know, basically drop a bunch of ice on it. You know, um, what kind of lettuce was this at the time? Right. So this was mostly, you know, kind of iceberg. iceberg. Yeah, yeah. Iceberg lettuce. Yeah. Not the kind of fancy lettuce that we see today, of course, yeah, very right. different, <laughs> you know, because, you know, these, you know, these crops at the time were also made to be, you know, there was also some like engineering on, on, on the kind of production end to make crops that were more durable so they could be shipped further and further afield. And um, so, yeah, I mean, these icing facilities take what's called field heat, right. Out of the, um, out of the crop. And so it can be shipped much you know, much, much sort of longer distances. So, you know, um, I think it was the Latchman's, if I remember correctly, made a big deal, you know, and I, you know, the other thing here is that, you know, um, um, the Holland Marsh was, I mean, was, was actually traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange, you know, at the time you could buy, you know, that's the other thing that this, this kind of financialization, right. Of, of, uh, of, of, of the Holland Marsh. So, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and so, yeah, the Latchman's, for example, make a big deal and have a big, a big sort of, you know, public relations uh, campaign around the fact that for the first time ever, you know, they ship Holland Marsh lettuce uh, uh, and celery, sorry, um, to to England, right, to the UK. And, and so, you know, what this does, of course, is it expands the kind of market, right? So the market very, in very short order in, in a number of, you know, five, seven, ten years goes from basically, you know, the million or so people in the greater Toronto area at the time to really around the world very quickly. And so what that does is it sort of reduces, um, you know, it expands market so that, you know, uh, farmers have far more people, you know, to sell to. There, there was other innovations as well. For example, the introduction of, uh, you know, saran wrap. 
Now, you know, Saran Wrap, of course, wasn't invented um, in the uh, in the marsh, but it was one of the first um, you know agriculture areas in the country to start using it. You know, uh, you know significantly. So this. You know, this also sort of helps preserve freshness and like expands how far you can ship and these kinds of things. That was that was fascinating, as well as vacuum cooling, and, yeah, you, that's which right. you mentioned in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you had mentioned you you've discussed a little bit some of the food and culinary products that come out of the marsh or that have come out of the, you know that that the marsh has really focused on um, over the last century. Um, so lettuce um, is not really cultivated in the marsh these days that when did that drop off yeah so that was sort of in the 60s and 70s i think it was and um you know um what what ends up happening is that you know there's a kind of increasing kind of specialization over time and so you know really the area just sort of focuses in specifically on carrots uh and 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 onions so i think today that accounts for you know almost 70 percent um of of what's going there so even even the kind of celery dropped off it's it's only about i don't know seven or eight percent i think right now um a lot of the lettuce production ends up going to quebec so there are pockets of muck muck soil in quebec as well and um you know partially this is uh due to you know how agriculture is kind of subsidized in different kinds of ways in that province and so a lot of the um a lot of of the lettuce production goes there um and uh, you know the carrot and onion production sort of stays in uh, in the marsh. Um, there's also you know the whole interesting uh, story of the Muck Crops Research Station, which is an extension of the Ontario Agricultural College at you know University of Guelph. And so this is a, a dedicated research station uh, that actually like is in the marsh. And you know they they begin kind of supporting the specialization in certain kinds of ways. You know to really to to, to kind of help focus on onions and carrots. So they do all kinds of crop trials and these kinds of things. Um, you know, um, they do studies on different kinds of pesticides and insecticides, um, different kinds of crop treatments. And this, this sort of helps further facilitate the, the kind of specialization, right? Um, um, and also, you know, they, so they don't do genetic uh, modification um, or at least they didn't at that, at that, at that crops research station. But what they do is they um, they will test seeds that have been sort of you know genetically um, you know manipulated to basically grow more durable, uh, more sort of visually appealing crops, right? So that's that's how you sell more crops is to make them durable and and nice looking, you know. And I you know I talked to one farmer and he said, you know, that he grows the ones that will sell, but he also always grows a couple of rows for himself because he said the the ones that they grow to sell are you know they they taste, I'm not going to use the language he used. He used okay. <laughs> probably not, not, suitable, not suitable for work language, but he basically said that those carrots, they just don't taste good. Okay. And so, but, but he does grow kind of like heirloom varieties essentially for, for his own personal and family consumption. But um, yeah, that's interesting. So I had a question about that, but before we, before I get there in terms of that, the evolution of, of, uh, of new crops um, that, farmers are, are perhaps cultivating uh, in the region. I wanted to go back a little further. So the carrots and the celery and the onions and the lettuce, they were not the first food commodities to come out of the marsh. Is that right? I mean, this was um, this is where whiskey was produced in the, was that the 19th century? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so very, very early on, um, you know, of course they use... Um, 
um, <clears throat> you know, you can cut, you know, from the marsh. Yeah. So there was a couple of, of, of earlier sort of products. So one was the marsh grasses, um, which were harvested. Um, and again, you can imagine, you know, if you've ever been around a marsh, you can understand the kinds of grasses and reeds and, you know, things of that nature that are, um, that are grown there. And those were cut for, um, uh, you know, for mattresses, for pillows, um, for these kinds of things. And so there was a, you know, it wasn't a huge industry, but it was, it was certainly, you know, that's what, you know, one of of the first things that at least settlers used, uh, used the area for, um, uh, you know, the other thing was to, you know, you can, you can cut out sort of chunks of, of this kind of root mat, right? And this is how you, you know, this is how you make things like whiskey, right? You roast the malt um, with this peat, right? So you could pull the peat out and, and, and use that to sort of roast barley, et cetera, um, to make various kinds of, of, of alcohol. So there was, a, there was a pretty robust, you know, according to the kind of historical documents, there's a pretty robust kind of bootlegging industry. Uh, in the marsh um, during this time. So a lot of production of, of alcohol that was then shipped, you know, various places uh, and when, in the U.S. and Canada. When did that subside? So, yeah, I mean, probably, you know, when when um, when it was revealed that agriculture could bring a sort of a lot more money to the area, um, those sort of, you know, um, that sort of bootlegging activity, which was always, which was always sort of viewed as kind of nefarious and, um, you know, distasteful in some ways. Uh, that was quickly, uh, you know, very quickly displaced by this more, um, you know, legitimate kind of activity as it was seen. You know, it was it was sort of, you know, agriculture, of course, was very, it was a very kind of high-minded pursuit as well, right? Particularly in this case, it was, um, um, you know, I haven't mentioned, uh, you know, Professor William Day yet, uh, but he was, he was at the University of Guelph and was really, is really the kind of, the godfather of, of agriculture in the area. And he was, he was a physicist and he was a, you know, he was a thinking man and, and, you know, he wanted to sort of make this landscape a sort of, you know, a kind of uh, a factory, a kind of Fortis factory, right. Um, that was very sort of techno, you know, it, it was, it was a sort of techno landscape. He had this, this grand vision of making a techno landscape. So of course that was seen as a much more, uh, yeah, just kind of legitimate use of the area than, 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 you know, making booze. Mm-hmm. And there's, so you, you note now more recently, there's a transition to mineral soil farming and greenhouse farming. Um, as well, there is political pressure to preserve the Ontario Greenbelt, where the marsh is located, um, in the face of urbanization and development, even though, as you say, the muck soil will eventually be depleted. And then there's also this increased push, um, which you've you've kind of noted so far, to relocalize food systems and support local growers. So are you seeing a shift in the sustainable sh- stewardship of these lands more recently to connect lo- local eaters and producer to producers through regenerative agriculture? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, um, it's sort of tricky, you know, because, um, you know, the thing about uh, the organic order of soil is that, again, if you can imagine that handful of of, uh, of material that you, that you would pull out of a wetland, you know, um, it's at different stages of sort of decomposition, right? And as long as it remains underwater in kind of hypoxic conditions, that is low oxygen conditions, um, that material will sort of um, break down at, very, at a very, very slow rate. Um, as soon as you drain the water off it and, it and it becomes exposed to, you know, dramatically increased levels of oxygen, 
that breakdown process happens very, very rapidly. So, um, uh, you know, so the muck soil is continually breaking down, right? It's, it's decomposing those pieces. And then, and then it, it so it's very uh, susceptible to erosion, for example, right? Wind erosion, water erosion, et cetera. And so, you know, eventually, and, you know, no one knows exactly, I mean, you know, exactly how long it will be, but eventually that muck soil will just, I mean, it will be gone. Like it, it, it will just, it will be, it will just like erode away essentially leaving, you know, just mineral soil. And already I say, you know, as I say in the book, and, you know, if you just drive around, you can, you can see it as well on around the edges of, of the marsh where the, this, this layer of muck soil was, um, was always the thinnest. It's, it's just gone in some places. So you see more greenhouses popping up and these kinds of things. So in some ways there's nothing really to do to kind of protect the soil, you know, um, to, to protect the muck soil. Um, um, you know, and I, I talk a bit about that as well, that, you know, the Holland Marsh is a protected agricultural area, but you know, it's really more about protecting a certain kind of farming, not the farmland because, you know, the farmland. Again, there's nothing to really do to protect it other than say to, you know, to reflood it and turn it back into a, into a wetland, which again, given the, the kind of, uh, the need to kind of relocalize food systems, I don't know that that's the right, that that would be the right answer. Like, I think we need to try to use this, um, you know, this kind of local infrastructure, uh, to support kind of food sovereignty and, and food security for, you know, local populations. So, so the book, in the book, you offer a warning, in a sense, for farmland protection initiatives. So what lessons would you like advocates for farmland preservation and, and the government officials who create policy around land use to take away from your research, making this important distinction, as you do, between farmland and farming? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, that's just it, right? I mean, I think a lot of our farmland protection policies are actually farming protection policies. Um, you know, the policies um, uh, that protect the Holland Marsh, for example, are almost silent on, on the kind of um, th- this issue of subsidence, right? This issue of, of the soil just like inevitably kind of, you know, melting away essentially, um, which is a huge oversight, right? And, you know, farmland protection policies are, you know, similarly almost silent on the kinds of agriculture that, that, that are being like enacted there. You know, so for example, you know, in Southern Ontario, you know, um, you know, well, I mean, all over the, the province, there is, you know, there is protected farmland in the greenbelt, et cetera. But what are we growing in these spaces? You know, we're, we're not really growing food for the most part. We're, we're growing industrial inputs. You know, we're growing soy, uh, we're growing corn. And these aren't things that we eat. You know, we're not growing food. Um, so I think that, you know, in order to sort of get farmland protection policy right, I think there also needs to be some provisions in terms of what's grown, you know, and that's, I mean, that's, of course, a, you know, a whole other sort of kettle of fish, but, um, you know, we can't just say, well, we're going to protect farmland to continue growing industrial inputs for, you know, for the processing of oils, et cetera, you know, um, Yeah. So the book is published by UBC Press, but it's also notable that it's open access. And this was funded through the Sustainable History Monograph Pilot and mm-hmm. the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Mm-hmm. Who do you want to read your book? Um, I, well, you know, everybody, hopefully. But. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what, it, walk us through the, um, the decision to make it open access and... and yeah, so this was this was um, the folks at UBC Press kind of presented me with this idea, and I thought it was a great one. You know, I mean, um, I think that 
um, you know, the idea of, of, of open access, of course, is, 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 is such a great one. Um, you know, and I'm very proud to be, you know, as you mentioned, I'm the president of the Canadian Association for Food Studies and our, our, our sort of, um, our journal, um, Canadian Food Studies is, is, is open access as well, right? I mean, we, we sort of made that, you know, deliberate choice. And so I was very eager to, you know, to have this, to have this sort of be, uh, be, be open source. So, you know, um, you know, another reason why I wrote the book is because in in Canada, in these territories, we don't really have a lot of. Um, so I think we have a lot of like. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I don't want to use the, the word amateur, but like sort of citizen science, you know, citizen sort of historians, citizen scientists, who who have written like really compelling kind of local histories of of various sort of um, you know local food systems uh, across the country. Um, but there's not so much scholarship on like, you know, specific kinds of growing areas, right? We don't, we don't see a lot of that. We, you know, th- there aren't so many books or sort of, sort of, you know, academic papers sort of written about that partially because I think, you know, um, you know, the Staples thesis was such a, was such a, you know, cast such a long shadow. Um, and Canada was just seen as being a kind of export oriented country and, you know, the only story to tell about it was that we grow wheat and corn and soy and we ship it to international markets. But, you know, so part of the motivation was to, was to try to tr- tr- sort of, you know, problematize that proposition a bit and tell, you know, a highly localized story. So in terms of who, who I'd like to read it, I mean, you know, I think that people who are interested in kind of agriculture history will, will find it interesting. I think people who are interested in food politics, you know, um, will, will find it interesting. Um, you know, I think graduate students, say, who are interested in, again, um, the history of agriculture, you know, food politics, I think would find it, would find it interesting. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, and I think that also just, just, you know, um, anyone who's, who's sort of interested in, yeah, uh, the kind of history of, of food and agriculture in this country would hopefully find the book somewhat interesting, or at least parts of it. <laughs> Absolutely. And, so as we are winding up, one final question. Is there anything more you'd like to add before we conclude? And where can readers learn more about your work? Do you have a website? Um, yeah. So, you know, I guess, I mean, one of the things that I was really trying to do with the book was to demonstrate how, um, you know, the kind of, that, you know, foods, that food systems are inherently social as well. Um and that this is important for kind of how they're how they're structured. Uh, that there's always this kind of relationship between so-called nature uh, in society that sort of shape food systems. And so this you know this leads into notions of say food justice. So when we're thinking about sort of again farmland protection policy, food insecurity policy, you know we need to hold um, um, both kind of you know natural kinds of ecosystems in mind, and also you know um, the kind of social implications um and that you know these things always need to be sort of thought of in in tandem so yeah of course the book is is you can find that on ebc's webpage. um i also have a website it's called foodandchange.com so foodandchange.com um i must confess that i probably don't update it as much as i should although i now that i've said that i i will absolutely update it quite quickly (laughs) Um, and there, yeah, I mean, there you can find my, you know, my, my, my email address, uh, um, you can find it at University of Toronto, it's michael.classens at University of Toronto, at, at utoronto.ca. Um, um, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, be happy to, you know, if anyone wants to reach out, um, any potential graduate students, you know, just anyone in general, I'd be happy to, uh, I'd be happy to, uh, to chat for sure. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for joining us today for What to Read Now with Gastronomica. We will be back in two weeks to feature conversations with authors from our newest issue, 22.1 Spring 2022. Join us on March 27 as we talk with Satomi Fukutomi to discuss her new article on social media and the popularization of Japanese food in Australia. For more details and further reading, visit gastronomica.org.